Or you uh, uh, I mean, I, I wasn't click. planning on it. Yeah. You click. Oh, no, There's yeah, not a whole lot of clicking to do. So. It's all good. Not too many pages there. I can move this one, right? Good. All right. Well, I'm uh, super excited to be here. This is my first time ever to preach outside of the United States of America. Yeah. Uh, so for someone who uh, started full-time ministry when I was, well, I was 25, 26, 26. I won't tell you how long ago that was. You can guess. Um, but this is uh, it's exciting for me. And so I'm, I'm honored and uh, excited to be preaching to my church family, too. It seems like, uh, I don't know, a month ago I was presented as a member maybe, and then at some point presented as an MC leader, and now I'm preaching, and so there's just a lot's happening. That's good. And I was going to uh, pick two or three of you to help me read that really long passage, but thanks to Greg, we don't have to do that. Uh, I didn't want you to have to hear my voice the whole time and hear me read all 29 verses that we're going to look at today. I'm not sure I've ever preached 29 verses in a single sermon, so this will be uh, this will be so fun to do. Um, yeah, so we can jump right to it. Let me ask you this, and you, you will need to participate because I can see every one of you in the room, and I know most of your names, and I will call you out if you don't. Um, who likes a courtroom drama? Raise your hand. Courtroom dramas? Anybody? I know my wife does. Like she was like, okay. I mean, you know, they may not be your favorite, but you like them, right? Um, I'm thinking like Law and Order, that you know, that show. I've seen that on even here on some of the British TV shows. Um, a few good men. Have you seen that movie? Two good. Oh, there you go. All right, good. You know, you can't. You almost can't talk about it without saying the Jack Nicholson, Jack Nicholson line, right? You know, say it with your teeth gritted. Um, I won't. I'm going to refrain. So. There's uh, Liar, Liar. Anybody seen that movie? Jim Carrey, crazy. He's just, it, that guy's nuts. Um, and then there's Miracle on 34th Street, right? That's a good courtroom drama when you think about it. You know, Christmas and courtroom together, you can't beat it. Um, what we have in our passage today, if you picked up on it as Pastor Greg was reading it, is a courtroom drama on a cosmic scale, all right? God is calling together the nations. And he's saying, let's gather together in this place of judgment, okay? The NIV says place of judgment. Other, others just say for judgment, all right? And the word judgment doesn't need to throw us off and make us think revelation and condemnation and end times as much as just that idea of coming together to make a decision, all right? And so we're going to look at this passage for what it is, a courtroom drama. So we're going to look at a few things as we walk through uh, Isaiah 41. And so if you, have, uh, if you have a Bible or a Bible app, you definitely want to keep it open. I will not read all that passage again, um, but we will read through it as we go. And so you'll want to follow along. And uh, hopefully you've got these awesome notebooks. I know my wife is enjoying hers. Um, so let me pray as we get started. God, thank you for your word. And thank you that um, your word is often different than other words you've given us, God. As we look uh, through uh, your word, we see history and we see poetry and we see um, theology. We see all sorts of things in your word 
that help us to understand you and to know you. And so God, today, as we look at this uh, giant metaphor of a chapter, would you help us to see the particulars as well and not just let this be um, something far away that we look at from a distance, but Lord, would you help us to pull it close? Would you help us to consider what your spirit is saying to our hearts today, that we might be more like your son, Jesus, as a result of our time together and our time in your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. So we're going to, uh, we're going to jump in and we're going to walk through, like I said, we're going to walk through this passage together. And so uh, verses one through seven show us, um, no, excuse me, let me back up. I want to talk first about who's in the courtroom, all right? So who's in the courtroom today? We see the nations. We see everyone, all right? This isn't, that's why I say it's a cosmic scale. This isn't just a few people. This isn't a closed courtroom. This isn't a courtroom that has uh, just the people involved and a few cameras. This is the nations. God has called people from all over. He's saying the coastlines, or some say the islands, and some versions say the islands. That's just saying the farthest reaches of what we understand existence to be. And he's calling people in from all over. And so this is everyone, and God is there with them. And he's saying to draw near for judgment. Um, Set forth your case, right? Bring your proofs. Let's see who's real and who's right. And so in the courtroom, we have the nations, we have everyone, and I want us to remember that that everyone includes you and me. So I want us to place ourselves in that courtroom. Because again, it's easy just to see this. It was written a long time ago. It's language sometimes that's difficult to understand. It's written by a prophet none of us have ever met. But you and I need to be in this courtroom as well, seeing this take place. So we've seen who's in the courtroom. Who's on trial? Well, this is what's fascinating. God is on trial. You say, wait a minute, God is on trial? But God doesn't, you know, like he's God. He's in charge. No one can bring a case against him. And yet God is the one who brings himself into this courtroom. And God wants us to see that he is willing to, in essence, prove himself. He's willing to stand trial in the the court of opinion with his own creation. And that's somewhat boggling to my mind, right? To think that God would do this. He would explain himself to his own creation. He condescends in doing this. And even that word to say God condescends to us, it it messes with my sensibilities a little bit because I'm like, well, that's kind of arrogant, right? And then I have to stop and remember, oh, wait, he's God, right? So anything he does with us, for us, to us, it's condescending because he's God. So have you ever found yourself explaining yourself to your, your child or to a, to a child, maybe not your child, but to a child, right? You're explaining yourself and halfway through you think to yourself, they, have, they don't have a clue what I'm saying, nor do they deserve this explanation in this situation, right? Why am I doing this? And yet because, uh, because I want to be a loving parent, sometimes I continue. Now, there are often times that I just get fed up and probably don't provide the explanation that I should, which would maybe help my child grow and learn uh, because I'm, you know, I'm dad and I'm right and you just need to do what I say. Um, But when I'm in that, maybe when the spirit of God is moving in my heart, right, and I'm in that peaceful mood, I I will try to reason with my child. I will try to give them an explanation. 
uh, so they can understand. And that's a little bit of a picture of what's happening here. Because God loves us, he puts himself on trial. He doesn't have to. It, this isn't something, when he's calling us together to make a decision and, and to be in this place of judgment, he's not affected by our decisions, but we are. They matter to us. It matters to us what we decide, what we think, what we understand about who God is. Now, with that thought, I want us to look at what's the evidence, all right? We've seen who's in the courtroom, um, and we've seen who's on trial. And so now I want us to spend some time looking at the evidence. And so in verses one through seven, we see that God is sovereign over history. That's his first um, piece of evidence for us. As he calls the coastlands uh, together, he calls the islands, he calls people from the out. Uh, stretches of existence, calls them together for a decision. He says in verse two, he asks this question. Who stirred up one from the east whom victory meets at every step? He gives up nations before him so that he tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust with his sword, like driven stubble with his bow. He pursues them and passes on safely by paths his feet have not trod. Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, the first, and with the last, I am he. So he asks this question, who? And then he gives us the answer. And the question, who, is an interesting one because really what we see here, and we won't really understand this as much until we get to some further chapters, but what we see here is a prophecy um, that is powerful. God is in some ways flexing, and he's saying, who, who's the one that stirs up this king, and we, we learn later that the king's name is Cyrus, all right? And that's who he's talking about when he says, stirs one up from the east whom victory meets at every step. He's talking about King Cyrus, and he's giving us um, this, this evidence of, of who King Cyrus is. As we read on, we'll learn King Cyrus is a pagan king that God uses to free his people from the captivity that they're in. And so as Isaiah um, Sorry, Isaiah, that's going to mess with me all day. If I say Isaiah, just hear Isaiah, okay? Um, but Isaiah is telling us about this. We, we see God through Isaiah telling us about this pagan king that's going to free um, his people. And the crazy thing is, Isaiah, or I'm sorry, Cyrus doesn't even show up on the scene for another 150 years. So this is when, when this was first written, when Isaiah was writing, Cyrus wasn't around yet. All right, so this was a, a true prophecy that we see later. And I, I know you may be thinking to yourself, like, I don't see Cyrus's name here. Keep in mind, as we read chapter 45 and, uh, 44 and 45, we'll see Cyrus mentioned by name in, in this prophecy. And so we are seeing the inklings of it here. Um, Isaiah is pointing us towards it. God in, in this courtroom drama is pointing us to the idea that he's the one that sets up kings. He's the one that tears them down. Daniel chapter two tells us that as well. He sets up kings uh, and, and removes kings. He sets up nations and he removes nations. That's who he is. And so we see in verses two through four, this great prophecy. So it's evidence that God's bringing to say, look, your other false gods, your idols that you, that you worship, they can't do this. And now, when you think about other religions, other thoughts, even now, there are those who have their prophecies. But when you look, they're not as specific as naming a name 150 years ahead of time that then comes true 
to a T, all right? And of course, we see other prophecies throughout the Bible that are accurate as well. Um, and throughout Isaiah, even seeing prophecies of Jesus himself. And so there's, there's a lot of prophecy going on here. But what you see in other religions is often these kind of, uh, I call them Miss Cleo prophecies. I don't know if y'all know who Miss Cleo is, but when I was a kid, there was this 900 line where you could call and pay like, you know, $150,000 a minute uh, to get Miss Cleo to tell you your fortune, all right? Uh, and so Miss Cleo would tell you like, ah, I, I sense you're gonna wake up tomorrow, right? Like, well, chances are you're gonna do that. And if you don't wake up tomorrow, you're not gonna know better anyway, right? So there were just these vague general ideas that, oh, that came true, right? We're such suckers. Um, and I think in, it, when you look at other religions, when you look at their prophecies, what you see are vague prophecies, not specific ones. But here, as well as throughout scripture and, and even other places in, in Isaiah, we see these specific prophecies and God's saying, I'm the one who does this. And so this is part of his evidence. So then verses five through seven, what we see when God gathers the nations together is he presents this evidence, just this one piece of evidence, and they go running, they go scattering. Verse five says, the coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They have drawn near and come. Everyone helps his neighbor and says to his brother, be strong. The craftsman strengthens the goldsmith and he who smooths with the hammer, him who strikes with the anvil. He's talking about idolatry. He's talking about those who fashion the idols. He's talking about how the nations create their own gods to worship because they are rebellious and they aren't willing to worship the true God, the creator who made them. And so they end up running back to their idols, which uh, verse seven tells us uh, that, you know, they're, they're supporting one another in this even, right? And they're, they're trying to build each other up. It's okay, guys, it's okay. Let's go back and build our idols. Saying of the, sol the soldering, it is good. And they strengthen it with nails so that it cannot be moved. They have to nail down their idols, right? So they don't fall over. They have to prop them up with nails. And so God's presented this evidence and the nations still um, rebel. So the evidence is that God is sovereign over history. And again, Daniel 2.21, I think I mentioned it earlier, but he changes times and seasons. He sets up kings and removes kings. This is who God is. He's sovereign over history. God says, I am, right? That's his answer to the question. When he says, who is it that does all this? We see at the end of verse four, he says, I, the Lord, the first and with the last, I am he. And, and again, this is a, a cosmic situation. This courtroom drama is in some ways still playing out right now. It's a prophecy of what it looks like for God to stand before the nations and defend himself. And so we're in the midst of this. Uh, even now, God's saying, I'm the first and I'm with the last. It's his way of saying, like, I was there at the beginning, but I knew the end from the beginning. And at the end, I won't forget any of the beginning, right? He's God over all of it. He stands outside of time and sees this. And it's a situation where it's not a what, but a who. I think that's important too. Isaiah's uh, one guy said, Isaiah is not a secularist. He understands in this passage that, that it's not a what is sovereign over history, right? There's no physical thing out there. And, and for that matter, you know, there's not even a human that's sovereign over history. There's not a who other than God. God is the who. And he makes that clear here by saying, 
I am. I am he. His sovereignty over history is exhibit A, and exhibit B then is his faithfulness to his creation. That's us. So he not only comes and gives this powerful prophecy to say like, here's kind of, you know, you might see it as like an, an ace up his sleeve, if you will, but God's not, I know he's not sneaky. All right. So that's maybe a bad analogy, but, but there's power enough just in the prophecy that we see. But then God also points out verses eight through 20, his faithfulness to his creation. Verse eight says, but you, Israel, my servant, and even let's stop there, but you, right? There's a transition there. He's built this case. He's gathered together everyone into this, this courtroom drama. He's, he's given some evidence. And then he's turned into this, this other evidence. And he says, but you, Israel. And then he uses some key words that jump out at me. My servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend. Servant, chosen, and friend. These are words that show he has a relationship with us. And again, servant, we, we see that word, and I think sometimes my mind at least goes to the negative kind of like, like I was talking about condescending earlier, right? Like we, we define it in a way that might not be what's appropriate here. I think servant here should let us see that God is responsible for us, okay? Um, servanthood in those days was different than what we know in the history, We've, even our history books and in the generations before us. And so God has a love for his servant. We are his servants. He's created us. We are his. We belong to him, but he's pointing out he's responsible for us. He's going to care for us. And then he says, Jacob, whom I have chosen. We are God's chosen people. If we let that sink in a little bit, that the God of the universe chooses us, even when we're rebellious towards him, even when we run to idols so quickly, He's chosen us. We're the offspring of Abraham as his people. And then he says, Abraham, my friend. And so it's in this context of relationship. It's in this context of God's love for us that we then see him telling us, do not fear. Do not fear. Verse uh, 10 and 11 are kind of key verses here in this, in this chapter. God says, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And even just in verse 10, we see the promise of his presence and his power and his persistence to uphold us and to keep us. Verse 11, behold, all who are incensed against you shall be put to shame and confounded. Those who strive against you shall be nothing, be as nothing, and shall perish. You shall seek those who contend with you, verse 12, but you shall not find them. Those who war against you, you shall, those who war against you shall be as nothing at all. For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not. I am the one who helps you. Verse 14 again, he's, he's driving home a point here, okay? Fear not. You worm, Jacob, you men of Israel. I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. He's not some distant God who tells us in the midst of the mess we're in to fear not. Don't be afraid. Just, you know, like I am sometimes with my kids when they're like, oh, I'm scared. I'm I'm like, child, you're safe. Go away, right? I'm so like 
quick to just be like, oh, come on, like stop. God isn't like that. He's patient with us. He reminds us and he draws us close to say, look, you're my friend. You're my chosen. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of what's happening. And I won't, I won't lie to you. Um, I'm mindful of the fact that I'm, I'm close to the Ukraine, right? I don't, this is not all about me. Please don't hear me saying that at all. But I'm aware of the fact that I've grown up in a country on the other side of an ocean that can feel very isolated from everything else that happens in the world. And, and I'm here now, right? I'm a little closer to things. And so I'm, I'm mindful of the fact that this country understands there are people still alive who knows what, know what it's like to run and hide in shelters because of bombing. They know what it's like to, you know, eat crazy things because times were so hard in the aftermath of that. And I don't know that. I don't know that personally. I haven't experienced it. I don't want to experience it. But I, I need to be mindful of the fact, right, that even, even now, I don't need to be afraid. And I think this verse, you know, it's hard. It's e- or I'm sure I should say it's easy for me to stand here and preach this. But I think even to those Christians in the Ukraine, they can know that God is in control. We can have faith in those messed up times in life that God is in control and he loves us and he comforts us and he gives us evidence of that. Because uh, to my shame, even though I've never lived in, in times like what they're dealing with, I quickly run to idols. I quickly run to other places for comfort. And this is what God's trying to address in this chapter and in this prophecy. God is reminding his people of their relationship. So we've seen who's in the courtroom. We've seen who's on trial. We've seen what's the evidence. So now I want us to see who's the real guilty party. Who's the real guilty party in this? And so we're going to look at the futility of the idols. Verses 21 through 29. Verse 21 says, Set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the king. Of Jacob. Let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. You begin to pick up on some language from God that it, in some way, I would say God's flexing a little bit, right? God's, God's getting down to business here. And for you and me, it would be arrogant to talk this way, I think. But for the God of the universe who created even the people he's defending himself to, there's no arrogance here on God's part. God cannot be prideful, right? He's God. But we see in this language, it says, he's he's telling these other idols, these other, the idol worshipers, let them bring them, tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are God's. Do good or do harm, that we may be dismayed and terrified. He's like, doesn't matter. Just, just do something to prove who you are because you can't. That's the language that we see here. Verse 24, God says, behold, you are nothing and your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. God made us as man in his image. And yet throughout history, mankind continues to try to make God in our image. We want to make God be more relevant to us, be more who we need him to be 
and, or who we think we need him to be in our times of need or whatever's happening. We begin to fashion God. And again, you, you catch his tone in these passages. So the real question for us today is who will we trust? Are we going to trust the God who's proved himself throughout history, throughout creation, the God, the one and only, the true God, the creator? Or will we trust the idols? Will we trust the God who condescends and comes to us even in the midst of our not deserving any of it? Or are we gonna trust those idols that we've created? Now, before we move on too much with this talk of idols, I want us to, again, put ourselves in this room. And for me, when I put myself in this scenario, I immediately think like, you know, idolatry, what's the big deal? I don't have any. Um, And I'm guessing none of you have like a little wooden dude that you've carved like on an idol in a grass hut in your back garden, all right? Like, like I do. No, I'm kidding. I don't. There's not a stitch of grass in my back garden, um, nor a hut or anything. None of that. But that, that's what we do. Um, C.S. Lewis talked about something called chronological snobbery, which I thought was a cool term. And it's just this idea of uh, those morons way back then didn't know any better, so they built these little wooden idols to worship but now that we're advanced, we know that that's ridiculous and we don't do that. So we dismiss all things related to idolatry because that's not us anymore. But Ezekiel 14 um, has a, uh, an interesting passage where Ezekiel tells us that these men, Israelites, had taken their idols into their hearts. All right? Worship of anything begins in the heart. And and so don't be thrown off because you don't have this carved image that you've nailed down to prop it up because it might fall over because it's your creation, right? Don't be thrown off by that. All of us deal with idols on some level. If I can, I'm gonna read you uh, a quote. It's by Tim Keller. He says, an idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. That's an idol. And so with that definition, we are all idolatrous. We're all guilty of having those times that we lean on something else for comfort. And listen, when I started thinking this week about the things that I look to for comfort... What's disturbing is, you know, I'm like, well, I don't worship coffee. But, you know, honestly, I, I look to it for comfort. There are times I'm like, you know what? I just need a cup of coffee, right? My life would be so much better if I have a cup of coffee. Like, coffee, it's ridiculous, right? I don't, I don't actively think of coffee as an idol. But it can be. My phone. Who wants to go without your phone? I'm just curious. Anybody willing to give me your phone for a week? I'll turn it off. I won't... I won't snoop or anything. I'll just hold it for a week and then I'll give it back to you. I mean, anybody, right? Like these are things that, yeah, I know. I know we're so torn because there's a part of me that's like, oh, that'd be amazing. And then I know like I'd be twitching in like two hours. Like, oh, I wonder if somebody's trying to text me. Oh, I wonder if somebody liked my photo on Instagram, right? Like those are the types of things that we find comfort in. 
and even that we find value in. It's been interesting for me the last couple of years as God has transitioned us from one type of ministry to another. I mean, there's definitely some similarities, but and now even uh, brought us overseas. Um, ministry can be an idol for me. Ministry can be something I find my identity and I find value in. And so I want us to think through, maybe it's not coffee and phones and ministry for you, but what is it? Because it's something. There's something there that's competing for your heart's affection. What is it? What's the best way to fight idolatry? This idolatry that you see. And again, it's easy to read and see this courtroom drama and just be like, yeah, idolatry is stupid. That's whack, right? Like, y'all know whack. Is that a thing here? That's whack. Okay. Um, (laughs) it's, It's so easy to do that. But it's so important that we understand that God loves us enough to show us how we're idolatrous. He loves us enough to show us that there are things that it, it could even be our kids. These aren't bad things, right? I, I mean, I, I, and again, I know this is judgmental of me, forgive me. I, I see parents that, you know, they're on their way to school and they're like carrying the kids' backpacks. They carry, I watched a parent, no lie, he had two backpacks, two scooters, and some other stuff they're carrying, and the kids walking along being like, no, I don't want to, you know, and the dad's like, come on, please, you know, and I'm thinking like, make that kid carry his own backpack, you know, and again, I should probably serve my kids more, and I I get it, but even our kids, my point is, even good things like our children, they're a blessing from the Lord, we can make them idols. I don't want to belabor this anymore, but I do want to ask you, What's that thing in your head right now? You don't have to tell me. Don't raise your hand. This is a rhetorical question, all right? But what is it in your head right now? Maybe it's a couple things that's in, in your heart right now even that you know. Those are the things I lean on. Those are the things that, that are my idols. And as we think about it today, the best way to fight our idols is to remember the cross. The best way for us to fight this 